Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brandon. For those of you who don't know me, I am one of the pastors here. And uh, as Cindy kind of alluded to, I've got uh, good news uh, or bad news. Um, it's the same news. It's really just kind of up to you to interpret. Uh, and that is for the next four weeks, you get me. Um, so I'll let you, de- I'll let you determine what that, what that means. Um, I know that this, the start of this year, this calendar year, has been a challenging one uh, for us as a church. Um, I know it's challenging to come to church every Sunday wondering who, who is it that's going to be speaking, uh, who is it's going to be leading. And, uh, you know, if you've been here for the last eight weeks, you've, you've had seven different communicators. So hopefully, um, and, and thank God for all of them. Uh, but we're hoping uh, that at least for the next four weeks, there's a little bit of consistency here that allows us to kind of settle into a rhythm once again. And so for the next four weeks, you and I, uh, we're going to be taking a journey. Uh, it's going to be a fun journey. It will be a challenging journey at times. Uh, we may have to use some muscles that we haven't used before or haven't used in quite some time. Along the way, I'm going to ask you to entertain maybe some ideas that uh, could potentially be very new or foreign to you. And in some cases, uh, they might even challenge some of your most deeply held convictions uh, or beliefs. I know this uh, because that has been the story in my own life as I've taken this journey. But by the grace of God, by the time we've reached the end of this series, the hope is that Jesus' words, the words of Jesus in Scripture, not my own words, have challenged us to grow together. And so today we start a new series. You can see the name of it. The name is Peculiar. Say it with me, Peculiar. Say, I'll try it one more time. It's really hard. One, two, three. Peculiar. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to lie, that sounded like a lot better uh, plan when I was just writing it. (laughs) Uh, And then I realized I had to say it, and, uh, but, you know, the horse is out of the barn at this point, so uh, peculiar it is. Um, We're going to get to later why we're calling it that, but first, uh, what we need to do is we need to lay some groundwork. We have to We have to build a foundation, so to speak, uh, for where we're going to be going in weeks two and three and four, and that's kind of the plan uh, for today. And so to do that, to do that, we are going to need to spend some time together talking about heaven. There's a famous uh, C.S. Lewis quote, it'll be up on the screen, from the book Mere Christianity, Mere Christianity, which reads as follows. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to, to, uh, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. Now, Lewis's words invoke a familiar feeling to us, right? The feeling that this, what we are experiencing right now, this is not as good as it gets. That we are, what we are experiencing here in life on earth will eventually give way to something greater, something much grander. Now, what exactly that is? Well, that's harder for us to get our minds around. Lewis's description would lead us to believe that he, he thinks he is ex- he's expecting to someday leave uh, this place, this world, and arrive at a fuller, more pure version of the good that he experienced in this world. And if you're anything like me, you've wondered about heaven yourself. You've thought, 
what will heaven be like, and when do we get there? And it's pretty ironic when you stop to think about it because this, this idea of heaven, despite the fact that we struggle to understand it, despite the fact that we don't really have words that we can adequately, adequately couch the idea in, um, it is central to the hope, to our hope as followers of Jesus, right? We're not entirely sure what the whole thing is, but we're excited it's coming. We know it's our future destiny, and that destiny provides us hope, but we're not really confident that we have any clue what that destiny will be like. It just seems kind of like a vague idea that we can't get our minds around, but we know we're supposed to be looking forward to. Like C.S. Lewis, we are keenly aware that heaven is other and different than what we normally experience in life here on earth. Heaven is somewhere else, and somehow we're going to escape this world to get there someday, because after all, that's the hope of the gospel, right? But is it? Is that the story of the gospel? Or is it possible that the gospel that we are familiar has been familiar with has been hijacked, and that much of what we have been led to believe for so long is a cheap substitute for the gospel? For most of my life, uh, my concept of heaven was shaped by uh, the theology behind uh, behind what be, what became the popular series of Left Behind. Right? Anybody know Left Behind? Yes? No? Three of you? Cool. Um, I was completely bought in to the Left Behind uh, series for many years. I bought the books, I, re- I saw the movies, I've never seen the Nicolas Cage movie, but I think I'm probably better for that. Um, uh, and what I, but what I didn't realize in all of this is that subconsciously, my understanding or my, my, my uh, buying into that kind of a theology also affected my theology of heaven. If you're not familiar with the, with the series or with kind of the thought process behind it, I'm going to give you what is going to be a very rough, very crude, uh, kind of super condensed and oversimplified version of what it looks like. It goes like this. At some point, in some unknown point in the future, all of the Christians on earth are going to be suddenly, they're just suddenly going to disappear. They're going to go someplace. They're going to go to be with Jesus in something called the rapture. And those who are left behind on earth were left behind because they did not proclaim Jesus to be Lord and Savior. And this rapture is going to be preceded by all sorts of, th- of warning signs, wars, famines, uh, plagues, natural disasters, and the like. And discerning Christians were there to be on the lookout for those signs, knowing that it meant the impending rapture of God's people. And thus would begin this seven-year period uh, where an anti-Messiah figure would kind of rise to power, empowered by Satan himself, and he would begin to impose his will of darkness on the world. And there would be things like one-world governments and some sort of mark or indicator that you had to take to say that I pledge allegiance to whoever this anti-Messiah in his kingdom is or suffer persecution for failing to take it. And those days would be called the tribulation, and they would be, uh, if you would allow me this, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days uh, for all those who, uh, who, after the rapture, became followers of Jesus, right? And all of this would eventually culminate in this, this massive, bloody battle that would take place somewhere in the Middle East uh, called Armageddon, where, the, where there would be just this massive clash of the followers of Jesus and the powers of the kingdom of darkness um, in the battle to end all battles, right? And then after all of this, Jesus would return, and he would bring all of his people with him, and he would usher in this period of peace, and he would reign on earth with his people for uh, a thousand years. And then beyond the thousand years, I don't know. I never actually heard anybody tell me what happened next. I guess we just figured we'd have a thousand years to figure out what happened next, right? That's the really, 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 really rough, simplified Cliff Notes version of it, right? For most of my life, I lived with that mentality, I needed to be on the lookout for the signs at the end of the age so that I could get out of Dodge before it was too late. The world was going to burn 
And the last thing I wanted to do was to be left behind to suffer for the destruction and the death and the pain that awaited those when I could be somewhere else with Jesus. And it messed me up at times. Like, it, it, when, I, when I look back on this, I kind of laugh, but honestly, it was real at the time. Uh, there'd be times I'd, like, come home in high school, and I would expect my family to be home, and they wouldn't be. And I'm like, and I, <laughs> we laugh, right? But in the back of my mind, there's this voice that was like, dude, the rapture happened. You didn't make the cut. Good luck right? And that's nuts to think about, but that was, I mean, those thought processes, they happened, right? And so I saw it as my job to read the books of the Bible, like Daniel, to read the books of Reve- the book of Revelation, to know what to expect. And I saw those books as mysteries to decode, right? Trying to fit the symbolism that existed in the books with present-day events and people. My sole purpose was to make sure I was not left behind. And it wasn't until years later that cracks began to form for me, and the theological underpinnings that I had bought into. First, it was learning that rapture theology, honestly, is a relatively new uh, stream of thought in, in Christian history, and its, its foundations are pretty tenuous. That was the first crack. But little by little, things that I would hear, things that I would read, things that people would teach me would start to kind of crack, crack away, bit by bit, at this facade, chip away at my paradigm for understanding heaven in the future. And, and I can still tell you, I remember vividly, where I was when the final blow was struck to that thought process. I was in the hotel lobby um, of, of, of a hotel, wa- hotel lobby of a hotel, uh, waiting for uh, the people that I was at this conference with to come down so we could leave. And I was reading a book uh, by uh, Rob Bell called Jesus Wants to Save Christians. How's that for a provocative title? Um, and as I was sitting there reading at this table, uh, I read a line that felt like it reached off the page and slapped me in the face. I'll never forget it, and, and it's going to be on the screen. This is, this is what it said. And, and, and in this passage, he's talking about the book of Revelation, right, Rob is. It says, were the, people in John's church, were the people in John's church reading this letter for the first time with Roman soldiers right outside their door thinking, this is going to be really helpful for people 2,000 years from now who don't want to get left behind? No, because it's a letter written to a real group of people in a real place at a real time, enduring excruciatingly difficult times, Christians were being killed by the empire because they would not participate. And Bell went on to pose this question. He said, what if Revelation was never meant to be some sort of like shrouded list of future events to be, coded, to be decoded? But what if it was a letter dripping with symbolism which applied to the day and time in which John was writing? A time when the Roman Empire, the strongest empire that ever existed, was at its height of power. And Christians were experiencing extreme persecution at that time. What if, what if Babylon wasn't some future power? What if, what if Babylon was Rome? What if the beast, what if the beast calculated his number 666? What if the numerology, the Hebrew numerology of Nero Caesar added up to 666? What if this, this stuff that was supposed to take place in the temple someday had already taken place? What if these events weren't future events? What if this is what was happening right there in that moment? That was a new concept to me. I was completely unfamiliar with it. And so I began to read more about it. And it wasn't long before what I had believed about the end times and the future of our world just kind of crumbled around me in a smoldering heap. But I am so glad it did. Because it has forever changed my understanding of the gospel. No longer was the gospel some sort of cosmic escape plan to me. What replaced it was this understanding that God as Debbie said earlier, is in the process of restoring all of his creation. Not through violence, not through destruction, not through escapism, but through self-sacrificial love. 
I like to think of what happened uh, in my mind as this way, in this way. For, for centuries, um, humans believed that uh, the earth was just this, and there's still people that believe this apparently, uh, a disc, right, um, that sat on these pillars. And there's kind of this firmament and, this, and the stars and the sun and the moon and all this kind of existed up here. And actually, if you understand that, Genesis 1 makes a whole lot more sense, right? Um, and they, so, so this is our conception of what the, what the world was like and, and our relation to the sun. And then eventually uh, that gave way to this idea that the earth was kind of the center of everything, right? And the sun and the moon and the stars and everything kind of centered and uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Orbited, orbited around the earth. And eventually we know today, at least most of us know today, that the earth is a globe, right? And it revolves around the sun. And together those things are revolving around the center of the Milky Way galaxy, right? Now here's the thing about all that. In the thousands of years that it has taken us to get to that understanding, nothing about how the sun and the earth interact has ever changed. Just like it always has, the sun rises for us in the east and it sets in the west, right? Nothing about how the sun or the earth work have changed over those thousand years, but thousands of years, but our perspective and our understanding of how and why the sun do what they do has changed. Our eyes have been opened to the reality, and it would be silly for us to ever go back to thinking otherwise. And it would be pretty unhelpful for us to do so. And so with respect to C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors, and with respect to authors of Left Behind, I wonder if we could use a change in our perspective regarding heaven as well. Jesus had a whole lot to say about heaven. Um, he called it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on which gospel you're reading. And, uh, and he talked about it a lot. Matthew alone records Jesus saying, uh, referring to heaven 50 times. And if you take the red words in Matthew and condense them, there's not that many, right? So he talked about it a lot. And our key verse for, this series, for today and for this series is going to come uh, from Matthew uh, in, in chapter 4. And these, these words that Matthew records are the very first words that he has Jesus saying when he begins his ministry. Jesus has been baptized, Jesus has gone through the temptation in the wilderness, he's ready to start his ministry, and these are the first words that he records Jesus saying to somebody. They'll be on the screen. The screen says, from this time, or from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it's easy for us to focus on that word repent, uh, because it's the command portion of the statement, it's the directive, it's the imperative, it's what people are being called to, but Why? Why are they being called to repentance? Because there's this qualifier phrase right after the comma, right? But Jesus doesn't just leave it at repent. He says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's that last part that I want to focus on today. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus mean there? It's interesting to note that the only other time that Matthew records Jesus using that phrase, that idea of something being at hand, is towards the end of the book. When, uh, when Judas shows up with the, the pitch, uh, the torch and pitchfork gang, right, to arrest him. And Jesus says, uh, behold, my betrayer is at hand. Uh, it's pretty clear in that moment. He's saying, hey, guys, Judas is here, right? So when Jesus calls people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, does that mean that Jesus is saying heaven is here? Later in Matthew 6, uh, just a couple chapters after this, as a part of his teaching on prayer, Jesus is teaching the disciples, and he says, uh, I want you to pray this way. As, as a part of the Lord's Prayer, he says, um, pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom, the place where God's will is done on earth. Does that mean that heaven can be here? 
in order to understand what Jesus is saying, uh, we need to back up for a minute, pretty much all the way to all the way back to Genesis 1, right? And if you, um, on the first slide there, it you saw the little icon that said that you can follow this on version. If you have the version Bible app and you're following this event, there is a link to um, a video in there that I would so highly encourage you to watch. The next, uh, kind of what I'm going to say in the next couple of minutes, I am greatly indebted to the Bible Project, which is a nonprofit organization that makes incredible videos about books of the Bible, themes of the Bible, and they have one on heaven and earth that will, like, blow your mind. And so the link to that is in uh, the version event. If you want to check that out, I could not recommend it enough, right? So Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we see that God has created a, a beautiful world which he declared to be good. And everything starts in a garden, and in that garden, man and God lived in perfect harmony, right? And relationship in heaven, the place where God's will is done, and earth were two realms right on top of one another, indistinguishable from one another. Heaven was here. But as humanity began to exert Excuse me, exert its own will despite God's wishes, the two realms separated. Heaven and earth were no longer one and the same. And the realm where God's will was done was no longer the realm where humanity lived because humanity wanted humanity's will to be done. And not a whole lot has changed, right? But God was never going to allow it to stay that way. In fact, we just finished a series where we talked about the promises, the covenants that God made to his people throughout history to say, I am going to restore everything back to the way that it was meant to be. And so he begins by asking Israel, construct this tabernacle and later construct this, this temple where my presence can dwell. And in doing so, God creates space where, where the two realms begin to overlap again, just, just a little bit, kind of like a Venn diagram. And for many years, the tabernacle and the temple served as that space where heaven and earth overlapped. But neither the tabernacle nor the temple were ever meant to be a permanent solution. After all, they were only these little localized pockets of God's presence, right, of heaven on earth. God was aiming for total restoration. And so eventually, God came near in the form of Jesus, God in the flesh, to dwell, to tabernacle on earth. And everywhere Jesus went, heaven and earth intersected. No longer was the overlap confined to a single space. Heaven was mobile. But eventually, Jesus was killed, Jesus resurrected, Jesus ascended into heaven. And at that point, it seems like, God, you're kind of moving backwards on the story, right? Like you injected yourself into our lives. Heaven is here. Heaven's moving around among us, right? Uh, but now you kind of left and went back, left the earthly realm again. But scripture tells us that before his ascension, Jesus promised to send an advocate, an advocate who would be with us, right? Who would dwell in everyone who proclaims that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And in other words, we carry the very presence of God in us everywhere we go. And in that way, Jesus promised that his followers would do even greater things than he did becomes realized. Because through the people of God, through the Holy Spirit's presence in them, in us, it is now possible for heaven and earth to overlap all over the place. And that's where we stand right now. Now, God's still not finished. He gives John the Revelator this vision, which is recorded in the book of Revelation, um, and, and it illustrates the future of God's story. John shares it in Revelation 21 and 22, where he describes this new Jerusalem, this beautiful city whose gates are never closed, and whose light is the very presence of Jesus himself. New Jerusalem is described as an urban garden, a restored Eden, where heaven and earth once again completely overlap and are indistinguishable from one another. And out of this city flows a river, and that river brings justice and peace and healing to the nations. And God will be with his people, and his will will be done, heaven and earth once more, for all eternity. 
will be one. Heaven will forever be here, not there. It is an unbelievable image, and it gives us hope. And the Old Testament prophets at times tried to capture this idea. They tried to give us language to, to understand this, this coming kingdom and to, to encourage, us with us, encourage us with those words. And so um, I want to read you two of those uh, from, from the prophet Isaiah. He's describing this beautiful Hebrew concept of shalom. I love saying that with my students, shalom. Um, and like in English, all we have to translate that is peace. But it is so much bigger than peace. Shalom is this idea of constant flourishing where peace reigns supreme, all wrongs are made right, and everything, not just humanity, flourishes. And so um, Isaiah tries to get us a glimpse of this a little bit. And the first one is, uh, it's going to be on the screen. It's from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, and I love this. Here's what he says. He says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the Lord will be filled with the knowledge, I'm sorry, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You want to talk about peace. When you got, lion, you got wolves and lambs hanging out together, right, without trying to eat each other or, or anything like that, that is an image. And it is clear that shalom refers to more than just the absence of conflict. In shalom, everything is in harmony. There is completeness. There is wholeness, right? Earlier in the book of Isaiah, he shares another, mess, uh, another passage. And this one is more uh, describing the coming king, right? He's talking about this king who's going to establish this kingdom of God. And, and here's what he has to say in Isaiah 2, verse 4. I love this. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Predators and prey living in harmony. Tools of war which once took life, now cultivating and giving life. These incredible images give us a foretaste of this future fulfillment of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And with those images in our minds, we return to Jesus' proclamation from Matthew 4 where he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand here now on earth. It seems pretty clear to, to us that the kingdom has not fully come. We are not experiencing that promised shalom yet. Nobody's arguing that. I don't think there's debate over that. But the hope of the gospel is rooted in the anticipation of that future shalom described by Isaiah, described by John. And our anticipation isn't meant to be passive. It can't be. We are called by Jesus to live in such a way that the images in Isaiah become our present reality. And that leads us to our, our, our key question, not for today and for the whole series. This is, this is the question I want to ask. Chew on. What if heaven is not a destination to await, but a reality to be pursued? What if heaven is not a destination to await, but a reality to be pursued? What if Jesus isn't going to blow everything up later, but is actually going to make all things new? What if the plan was never for heaven to be somewhere else? What if the place that Jesus is bringing his followers back to, the new Jerusalem, is right here? And what if the new Jerusalem is both present and still arriving, both now and not yet, both here and there? 
What implications does that have for us as followers of Jesus? What if it's our responsibility to live as if heaven is here and not there? Jesus spent the vast majority of his ministry telling people all about this kingdom of heaven and its way of life. And he didn't tell people, just hold on till it gets here. Just hold on, it'll be here soon enough. He called them to follow me. He challenged them to live the very reality of heaven in the here and now, to live into shalom, to seek heaven on earth, not just with our words, but with our actions, to not just simply pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but to live on earth as it is in heaven, to bring there to here. C.S. Lewis wanted to go to another country, another world after death. The, the theology of left behind says we're just looking to the sky and waiting for Jesus to come back, right? But I dare say that both thought processes, this is bold, both thought processes miss the mark on the hope of the gospel of Jesus, which proclaims that I am making all things new and that the future is a restored heaven and earth right here in this place. And I believe that it is our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to live as if we are residents in that kingdom right now. So the question just very simply becomes how? How do we do that? Uh, if we're going to live as if heaven is not a destination to await, but a reality to be pursued, we're going to have to be different. We're going, we can't be normal. We can't be okay with the status quo. We're going to have to rebel against something like the American dream. We're going to have to rebel against every lie that we have been fed that is antithetical to this kingdom that Jesus tells us about. We're going to have to be a bit peculiar. After all, we serve a peculiar king, a king who makes his triumphal entry on a donkey, who subverts the power of empire through love and through prophetic words, and who defeats evil by allowing it to kill him. That is the king we follow whose upside-down kingdom of heaven we pursue. Jesus was peculiar. We're in good company. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at some specific ways what are some of the specific ways in which we are called to be a peculiar people in this place and this time today who pursue heaven in the here and now? And it's going to be fun. At times it might be a little tense. Who knows? If nothing else, I can promise you this. I promise you the small group discussion will be great. It'll be fun, right? But for today, here's where I want us to land. I want us to land. I want us to do two things. The first thing I want to do is I want us to prepare. And by that, I mean I want to give you some homework, some, uh, some prep work, if you will. In anticipation of these next three weeks, one of, the, one of the most important things I think that we could do that I'm going to challenge everybody in this room to do, just read the Sermon on the Mount. Fifteen minutes, that's all it's going to take. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's sometimes called the Manifesto of the Kingdom. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read that this week. Read it with, read it with fresh eyes. Read it in preparation for, for where we're going to be going in these coming weeks. If we do that, uh, I think we're going to have, I think we're going to have fun. I think. I hope. So that's my challenge, first of all. This week, find 15 minutes to read three chapters. It won't take you very long. It might flip your world upside down, but it's not going to take you very long to read. And the second thing I would like uh, for us to do right now is, is to respond. Jesus' words in our key verse are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The season of Lent that we find ourselves in right now is a season that is marked by inward reflection and repentance, recognizing our need for a Savior and I wonder as we begin this journey together if there are ways in which each of us individually and ways in which we, the people of Kankakee First Church communally, have failed to live in the radical pursuit of heaven in the here and now. I wonder if we've been passive. 
I wonder if our intentions have been great, but our direction has not aligned with our intentions. I wonder if we've gotten too comfortable uh, with this idea. I wonder if we've gotten too comfortable simply praying for God's kingdom to come and perhaps need to spend some more energy pursuing heaven with specific action. As we prepare our hearts in these final four weeks leading up to Easter, Resurrection Sunday, the celebration that that will be, the question for response is where and how might we individually and corporately need to repent for our failure to live in pursuit of heaven on earth? I don't know what that looks like for you. I can tell you what it looks like for me. And the answer is, yeah, I've failed at that often. My intentions may have been great, but my direction, not always in alignment, right? There are ways in which I have shirked that responsibility, and I'm guessing that most of us uh, could say that that's the case. And so um, as we get ready to pray here, I would, just, uh, I would ask you to be honest with yourself. Where, where have I failed to live into the reality of the kingdom of God here and now? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we're thankful for, we're thankful for your words. We are thankful for scripture that tells us, that is a story that points us to you, that tells us the things that you said, tells us the things that you did, the people you spent time with, this kingdom that you wanted so badly for us to know about, and not just know about, but to live into. We thank you that you modeled for us uh, a life that was different, a new way to be human, a, a life that was dictated and led by by love and, and, and self-sacrificial love at that. And Jesus, there, there, are times, uh, there are times in our lives where we miss the boat. There are times where we have opportunities laid in front of us uh, to live in a way that is different, to live in a way that is peculiar, and where we have failed to step into that, uh, sometimes out of fear, sometimes out of confusion. Um, but we don't want those to be barriers to what you are trying to do here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask you to, to forgive us uh, for the ways in which we have failed to pursue heaven on earth through our actions. We ask you to forgive us for the times that we have imposed our will over yours. We ask you to forgive us for the times when we have missed opportunities to be light to somebody else, and maybe we have been the only opportunity they were going to receive that day to be light, to have somebody be light to them. We know, Jesus, that you are not seeking to hold, uh, hold these things above us. You're not looking to, uh, to hold those things in intention and, and tell us where we have failed over and over and over, but you are looking to redeem us. You are looking to use all things for your good. You are looking to, con- to transform us into your image. And so we ask that you would renew us. We ask that in this, in this period of Lent that you would empower us, that you would remind us that a hope that is only about a distant future is no real hope at all. That you would show us how to pursue heaven for the sake of those around us. That you would give us a sense of urgency. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, maybe there's, uh, there are people here today Maybe you would say, I have never bought into this whole Jesus thing. I'm not sure at all what to make of this whole God stuff. But I hear about this heaven on earth. I hear about this creation at peace and harmony, this self-sacrificing love as a way of life. And I want that. And I need that. I need hope. Hope 
that this isn't as good as it gets. Hope that my life isn't beyond redeeming. And even though I don't understand everything, I understand enough to know that I need Jesus. And I want to follow the king who rules with love. I want to follow the king who showed true power comes from self-sacrifice and who put that power on display at the cost of his own life so that I may truly live. And if that's you today, I'm going to challenge you to take your first step with Jesus. And that's, that's very simply this. We're going to pray here in just a moment. And if you want to step into that new life, if you need that hope, I would encourage you to pray along, along with us. And, uh, and that's just step one. So we know by now that at First Church, nobody prays alone here, right? Nobody prays alone. So would you join me as we pray today? Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. I need your forgiveness. I need your life. You died so I could be forgiven. You rose so I could be set free. I give you my life and I ask for yours. That I may be clean. That I may be free. That I may be your child. And that I may experience your life. Now and forever. I am never turning back. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen, amen. First Church, can we celebrate new life in the kingdom of God today, please? <laughs>